In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. Let us pray. Yea, Lord, t'was thy rich bounty gave my body, soul, and all I have in this poor life of labor. Lord, grant that I in every place may glorify thy lavish grace and help and serve my neighbor. Let no false doctrine me beguile, let Satan not my soul defile. Give strength and patience unto me to bear my cross and follow thee. Lord Jesus Christ, my God and Lord, in death thy comfort still afford. Amen. Dear brethren, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Amen. The appointed text for this last Sunday of the church year is that parable which, with which we are all quite familiar, that of the ten virgins and five, uh, five wise and, and five foolish. Of all the lessons which we consider throughout the Sundays of the, and festivals of the church year, which have been thoughtfully appointed and handed down to us through many, many centuries and generations of faithful use, the selection of lessons appointed for today are by far the most recent. But they are also among the most memorable, aren't they? I think at least the gospel lesson is. This is in part because of that beautiful hymn we just sang by Philip Nikolai, Wake, awake, for night is flying, which for its beauty of expression and richness of spiritual instruction has been called the king of chorales. A chorale, for lack of a more thorough definition, is a Lutheran hymn. At the time of the Reformation, there were several different traditions with varying lessons for this last Sunday of Trinity. All of them very good and perfectly fitting for the end of the church year, but not generally the same from place to place or even from congregation to congregation. Yet 400 years ago, it was this hymn that caused what we now hear and consider every year to be cemented as firm tradition. And so the Lutherans after the Lutheran Reformation sort of capped off the lectionary which has been in use for nearly 2,000 years. It's kind of neat. Lutherans wanted to sing this hymn. Not to sing this hymn at least once a year should bother all of us and seem strange like something's missing. Even more so than if we were not to sing Silent Night on Christmas Eve which, by the way, was written by a Roman Catholic, and notwithstanding its very moving melody, we have to give it that, lacks nonetheless the spiritual value of what we have just sung this morning. Another reason for this hymn being so loved is that 132 years after it was written by most likely the most talented composer who ever lived, Johann Sebastian Bach honored all three stanzas with a magnificent three-part cantata. He immortalized the hymn, so to speak. And you can go and listen to it on YouTube. It is wonderful how the talent and skill and devotion of these pious Christians, Nikolai and Bach, 
have built upon each other and proven to be and remain such a blessing to the church, even to this day. Our days are numbered. God knows when they will end. We don't. Until they do, we mark the times and seasons by returning to and repeating themes that train us to embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life. We make melody in our hearts to the Lord and teach and admonish, comfort and edify one another by singing our faith. Because we want one another to remain in the faith, don't we? What we say to one another and what we sing to one another matters. We don't sing in church to entertain ourselves or to excite sentimental emotions any more than we say things to hear ourselves talk. No. We sing to remember and proclaim the gospel and to confess how beautiful the gospel is by making it sound as beautiful as we can with what voices and instruments and talent God has granted us. Never has the Holy Church of Christ been more prepared to proclaim the praises of Christ and guard the treasure of the gospel entrusted to us than in the hymns that have been written and composed for us to sing from the age of the Lutheran Reformation. The gospel that was shrouded for so many long dark years by the error of the papacy was brought to light by the grace given to our dear Dr. Martin Luther and so that it would not be buried again and hidden from hearts that sorely need it. We have been teaching our children to sing and memorize the gospel in the hymns our fathers and mothers have passed down to us, which also establishes the firm and blessed tradition we have as Lutherans of operating and praying for our own Lutheran schools. And this is good for us, that we are so well prepared to articulate the gospel with beautiful music because never have darker and uglier forces opposed what lightens our minds and hearts more than in these latter days. And never have we more needed chaste and decent music to cheer us and to delight our children. Teaching our children to sing their faith is the most enjoyable way and the most beneficial way to guide them into remaining faithful to the instruction of our Lord. Music and singing are precious gifts from God that teach our hearts to love and ponder the glory of His grace. The sweet psalmist of Israel, King David, knew this well as the Spirit of God who invented singing and commanded us to sing to Him. He inspired David to write and arrange the book of Psalms, which served as the hymnal of the Old Testament church. After Jesus washed his disciples' feet and instituted the sacrament of his body and blood as his last will and testament for his church until kingdom come, he went to the Mount of Olives to pray while singing hymns with his disciples. And it was night. In this way, he taught them to watch and pray and be mindful of all that would soon come to pass. And it is night. And so we watch and pray 
in the same way, mindful and grateful for all that Christ has done to save us, by singing with joy the praises of him who has called us into his marvelous light, even though it be dark all around us. The parable of the ten virgins concludes with this sober warning. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. We do not know when Jesus will return, but he will. He comes as a thief in the night, but he does not come to overtake us as a thief. He gives us light. We avoid being caught off guard by hearing and considering and believing the gospel. And so we are in the light. We are sons of the light and of the day. We are born again. The same power of the gospel that gives us new birth in holy baptism is the power of the gospel that engages our minds till we die. And this is extremely important. We don't graduate from one thing to another. We remain faithful to our first love to what first cleansed us, saved us, and gave us our inheritance with Christ, an imperishable, uncorruptible inheritance reserved in heaven for us that doesn't fade away. The faithfulness that our consideration of the day of judgment admonishes us to have is faithfulness to the grace of God in Christ, which we have known and believed. The parable of the ten virgins teaches us that those who do not know when the bridegroom will return, but who are ready nonetheless, are those who think about the gospel. This is the word used for wise, for wise when, when describing these five virgins. Another translation of this word might well simply be thoughtful. The usual word for wisdom is that beautiful name, Sophia. Sophia is the end of all thoughtfulness and the goal of all our thoughts. Sophia is what God is in his very nature. He is wisdom. This name refers to Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Jesus calls himself Sophia. In Proverbs 8, as he invites all people to gain understanding, to think, to think about the gospel. Blessed is the man who listens to me, Jesus says, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. So says wisdom. Now, if this isn't the setting of Jesus' parable, they all sleep at the gates of the wedding hall, but they do not all enter. They did not all have oil in store. They didn't all listen. To have oil in store is to hold on to the gospel. It is to be mindful of the gospel. It is to find Jesus, our life, and so in him find the favor of God. This is how we are ready. And not just on Sunday morning or some evening service, but every day of our lives, we know not when, we think about the gospel that gives us God's favor and teaches us how it was won. Jesus gives us something to think about, to meditate on day and night, as the first psalm says. He gives us something to possess, to be sure. But what he gives us to possess is something to think about. 
He gives us the forgiveness of sins and peace with God that surpasses all understanding, but we seek to understand it by loving it so that we may know the height and depth, length and breadth of his love for us. We consider the grace of God in everything we do. As we are alert and awake and zealous for good works with the light of grace burning in our hearts, excited at what God is doing among us and in us and what he has done for us, we have something to think about, sing about and confess. And if when we are crying on the heights for joy, so also no less in our dreariness and in our shame and in our soiled garments of sin and regret in the depths of despair. Even then we have something to ponder that gives us hope and that directs our longing to the throne of God's grace, namely, that is, how God sent his Son not to condemn us, but to save us, not to appoint us for wrath, but to rescue us, to be obedient in our place, even to the point of taking our death upon himself and bearing the wrath of God against all our sin to, to redeem us. Now one who doesn't think about this with whatever measure of intelligence he has been granted by the good Lord is simply not a Christian. One who is not willing to think about the gospel doesn't love the gospel. One who doesn't want to come to church to hear it is not waiting at the gates of wisdom and will not enter when Jesus returns. We are saved by grace alone, but grace cannot save a rock. He takes out our hearts of stone, the prophet says, and gives us a heart of flesh. He engages what makes us human. He made us. Even if the rocks would cry out to praise him when the children are silenced. Remember that verse? Yet even then, he would first have to make these rocks flesh and blood in order to breathe life into them. Even those who are severely mentally incapacitated are still made in the holy image of God and are redeemed by the same blood of God and have something to fill their minds as narrow as they might be. Being clothed with Christ, we reflect the very righteousness of God because we wear by faith which God has worked in our hearts. We wear by faith that holy obedience that he gives to us in the forgiveness of our sins. And if we, as poor sinners, are granted thus to reflect God himself, we who have the ability to think about what God has given us are also given to reflect on it to think and ponder all God's truth can teach us. Baptism saves us. We should think about what our baptism gives. If you are not a baby, if you are able to think about anything, to whatever extent you are able at all to pay attention and listen to God's word being preached to you, you should think about what God has done to rescue you from sinful thoughts and give you everlasting life in his name and make you wise. One who doesn't think about the gospel isn't a Christian. One who doesn't desire wisdom remains a fool. This is what the lesson of the ten virgins teaches us. It is a warning from him who loves us.
To have oil in store is nothing other than to care about the gospel. It is to hold interest in what it means for you as you grow drowsy and overcome by cares of this world. It is the desire to learn how the gospel applies to this or that sorrow or concern or trouble or pain. There is nothing you suffer or are tempted by for which the gospel does not offer a balm and a way of escape. Jesus has borne your sorrows. By hearing what God's word teaches you, that he is pleased with you for Jesus' sake, you desire to apply your life and all that fills it and makes you tired and discouraged to apply to everything in your life that saving peace with God in Jesus' name. But when will he return? And what manner of persons ought we to be until then? The psalmist tells us, Wait, my soul, wait on the Lord, for I shall yet praise him. So why wait to praise him? The parable Jesus tells of the talents teaches us how we may praise him while we wait. And it serves as a commentary on the more familiar parable of the ten virgins. If, in order to hold on to the peace of Christ, which the gospel gives, and so enter the wedding feast with joy and gladness, if, in order to do this, we are to meditate on the gospel with as much mental ability as we have been granted, and God knows what he has granted each one of us, and God knows how much we have left, so we see how we are to serve Christ with the other things he has granted, by investing them to his honor. And again, he knows how much we have received. As far as oil is concerned, note well that each virgin needed the same amount. Each of us equally needs Jesus. Each of us needs what the Holy Spirit gives to those whom he calls and enlightens. We all need faith. And as I taught you a few Sundays back, it's not about how much faith you have, as though it can be measured like that, but that you have the right faith that trusts in Jesus. As far as saving faith goes, we all have and need the same measure, but our master is wise. He also gives other spiritual gifts and material and mental and physical gifts according to his own wisdom. He knows us. And we do not have these things in equal measure. He knows why he makes one person smarter than another, or richer, or better at whatever he puts his hand to, whether it be speaking well, listening well, remembering things. Oh, there are savants among us, and there are those who try as they may have much less talent. And it's not their fault. It's not God's either. But it's God's choice. A talent is something you're born with. A skill is something you develop. You develop a talent by investing it, by working at it. You bury a talent by taking it for granted. We get the word talent from this parable. Did you know that? It's a Greek word. The English word talent comes from this parable. A talent was a heavy currency in the days of Jesus that today, when adjusted for inflation, would be worth about $50,000. 
The first servant got five talents. He immediately invested it, and when his master returned, his wealth increased from $250,000 to half a million. The second servant got only two. He returned only $200,000, less than what the first started with. But both were approved. Well done. God owns everything. He doesn't give us what we have because he needs the interest. That's what the devil will tell you when he shows what you have wasted, as though God's grace can't catch up with what you have ruined. God's not making an investment when he gives you this or that ability any more than he gave seeds according to their kind to the trees he made because he was hungry for its fruit. It's absurd. No, he's honoring you. He's kind and generous. He knows what you're made of, that you are dust, and what strengths he has provided. He knows that you want to honor him. And for those who confess their weakness and sin, who depend on Christ, he enables you to do so, to honor him. How will you discover your gifts? How will you use them for the glory of Christ? See the last servant. Why didn't he invest? Why did he not do what the others did? I'll tell you. Or rather, he tells us. It's not because he failed to discover the talent God had given him. No, it's because he knows something about his master. It comes back to what he knows. To what he thinks about it. He knows that his master is a hard man, reaping where he has not sown and gathering where he has not scattered seed. But is that so? Does he know that? His master confirms that he knows it, but is it really the case? Does his master actually concede it? What knowledge is this and where did it come from? Not knowledge of Christ. Not from the knowledge that you have. Christ is no hard man. He is gentle and generous and kind. His yoke is easy. He gives you rest. He reaps nothing but what he did sow. He came in our own flesh and blood and sowed his word in tears and sorrow as he bore the weight of all our guilt upon himself. And he comes again to reap what he has most certainly planted and what even from heaven today he tends to and waters and nourishes so kindly and patiently with his holy word, which you hear even right now this morning. What this wicked and lazy servant knew was false. He was beguiled by false doctrine concerning our Lord Jesus. He buried his talent because he didn't trust God. He thought God was expecting something that he could not produce himself as though God cannot give the increase he desires, as though the doubling of the first two servants' fortunes wasn't the work of God who prospered and defended their investments. But he failed to invest in his master's fortune because he thought little of it. That's why. And he thought little of the one talent he got because he thought little and falsely about God's grace. With a blameless man, God will show himself blameless, the prophet says. But with the devious, he will show himself devious. This wicked man met his fate for the same reason that the five foolish virgins met theirs. 
He was unmindful and unthoughtful of the gospel that tells us otherwise than what he thought. He thought God gave so that he could repay and earn something. He figured he was better off just returning the talent as though God needed it. His master gave it to him who had ten. And so God does. He honors those who are faithful with little. He gives them much. The point of this parable is not that we must discover something in ourselves that isn't there. Let it be little. Just be faithful. God will give you much. Let it be little. We aren't now required to be the best at whatever we're good at, or to write the best hymns or compose the most splendid music. Nor are we required to return and search through the fields of our lives and dig up every talent God gave us that we buried and lost. No, but we are to use what we have to proclaim and promote that grace of God and Christ by which he overlooks our laziness, forgives our wantonness, honors us so highly as to receive us and all we have from his rich bounty. If your goal is success and glory, go spend your talent. If your goal is pleasure, travel, worldly excitement, your talent will be spent and required of you. It would have been better had you buried it. But if your goal is to be ready when Christ comes again, invest whatever talent you may still have to praise him who will hold nothing against you or anyone who trusts in his suffering and death for the mercy that we need. And that mercy is yours. If you have a voice, you have a talent. Sing, lest what we have to sing be taken from us. God doesn't judge and neither do his children the value of your talent based on worldly standards of success. He judges them in love. And we love one another in Christ. Sing if you have a voice. If you have ears to hear, you have a talent. Listen to what Christ commands to be preached to you for your good. If you have money, if you have health, if you have a car, if you have a wife, if you have a womb, if you have even the ability to express sympathy like you mean it to a brother or sister who is sad, then use this talent which God gave you to the glory of Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. Do you have courage? Admonish one another to remain faithful to the gospel we all need to hear. We love each other in Christ. We don't want one another to fall away. Do you have strength? Support one another as you can. Let God worry about how much interest or return it makes. Only trust him. Be mindful of his mercy. Wait on the Lord and praise him. He is not gunning to find you wanting. He is eager to honor what he has accomplished in you. And he is coming very soon to accomplish much more than we either deserve or have imagined. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding 
shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus unto everlasting life. Amen.